The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. In April of last year, President Joe Biden announced new rules meant to crack down on so-called ghost guns that can be built at home. All of a sudden, it's no longer a ghost. It has a return address. It's going to help save lives, reduce crime, and get more criminals off the streets. The rules require sellers to run background checks and include serial numbers on the gun kits. Last month, a federal judge in Texas struck down those regulations. But this week, by a 5-4 to four vote, the Supreme Court is allowing federal officials to resume enforcing the rules while litigation plays out. Joining me is Second Amendment law expert John Donahue, a professor at Stanford Law School. It seems like there's a massive amount of litigation over gun restrictions. So, as is always the case, there is this back and forth between regulatory measures and industry response. And in general, every restriction on weapons of any kind is being challenged in federal court. And unfortunately, in my view, some of the federal courts are trying to preempt the enforcement of these measures. So the litigation is going on literally across the country. It's, to my mind, very unfortunate that these restrictions are being undermined by the federal courts. What exactly is a ghost gun? Ghost guns are essentially a name that refers to the kits that one can buy online without going through any sort of background check and allow one to make a fully functioning weapon in a relatively easy fashion. It might take you five or six hours to put a complete ghost gun together. But the thing that makes them so attractive to criminals is that they bypass the normal requirements of going through a background check when purchasing a weapon and also eliminate the identifying serial number that would be required on a legally purchased gun through a normal gun seller. So Texas Judge Reed O'Connor, the judge who ruled that Obamacare was unconstitutional, struck down the regulations. What was his reasoning? So it's essentially this all-out assault on the idea that the government can restrict uh, individuals' ability to acquire weapons. And in the ghost gun case, they were essentially saying that these efforts on the part of the Biden administration to curtail access to ghost guns was violating the Second Amendment, highlighting the part of the Second Amendment that says the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, ignoring the first part of the amendment, of course, which refers to a well-regulated militia being necessary to a free state. Were you surprised by the Supreme Court's decision to let the regulations remain in place pending litigation? You know, it wasn't surprising to me because it does seem to me that the issue of ghost guns is such a clear, valuable governmental intervention that I thought even this Supreme Court 
would have a hard time trying to strike down these sensible government restrictions. The only thing that did surprise me a little bit was that it was only 5-4. I thought Kavanaugh would have joined this and at least made it a 6-3 decision. And it also shows that we may not be out of the woods because this was a 5-4 decision saying, at least at this point, we're not going to stop the Biden administration. But it certainly wasn't guaranteeing that they wouldn't try to stop the Biden administration later after more thorough litigation on the issue. Also this week, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit found that Hawaii's 30-year ban on butterfly knives violates the Second Amendment, and they based it on the Supreme Court's new history and tradition standard. How did they come to that decision? This is a mind-boggling decision. The first sentence starts off saying something like, because this Hawaii restriction on these type of knives, you know, violates the clear text of the amendment, it must be struck down. And it's almost extraordinary, I think, to argue that butterfly knives could in any way advance the interests of a well-regulated militia. So it, it just seems absurd on its face, both as a matter of wise policy but also just as a matter of interpreting the Second Amendment. So I was very puzzled by the decision. But again, unfortunately, many of the federal judges seem to think that every restriction on guns of any kind should be struck down, and they're sort of advancing that mission whenever they have an opportunity. I mean, the Supreme Court Bruin case was about gun regulations in New York. How did they say that this same framework applies to butterfly knives? It's interesting. A number of years ago, the former Republican, I should add, Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens, said the single worst decision in his 34 years on the Supreme Court was the Heller decision, which is the first time that the Supreme Court said there is this individual right under the Second Amendment to have a gun in your home for personal defense. And that was almost certainly wrongly decided, as John Paul Stevens said. But Bruin has expanded the harm enormously because it not only struck down this 109-year-old New York City restriction on carrying of guns and said that you have this individual constitutional right to carry guns outside the home, But it also set forth a sort of bizarre framework in which they said that all of the evidence that New York brought forward showing that the restrictions reduced homicides, reduced violent crime, were irrelevant. That we didn't care what the consequences were because this is a constitutional right. And unless you can show us some historical restrictions, you know, perhaps going back to 1791, that are analogous to the restriction that you're talking about now, we're just going to say you cannot have that type of gun regulation today. And so that's what the Hawaii decision picked up on. They said, well, a butterfly knife is a weapon. The Second Amendment refers to arms. And so we will extend this conclusion to a restriction on butterfly knives. And because we don't see any similar restriction on butterfly knives in 1791, you can't do it today. It makes no sense in any customary interpretation of constitutional law or good policy, but that's where we are. Hawaii even pointed to statutes dating back to 1837 that regulated bladed weapons like buoy knives. 
but the panel said the state hadn't cited any statute which categorically banned the possession of any type of pocket knife. You know, the Ninth Circuit used to be a very liberal circuit, but now it depends on the panel you get. And in this case, there were two Trump appointees and one George W. Bush appointee. Do you think that Hawaii should ask for an on-bank hearing? Yes. And even on an on-bank hearing now, you don't know because they, they actually don't take the entire Ninth Circuit for on-bank, but they will select a portion of it. And if you got a bad draw, you could imagine not prevailing on the on-bank. But I still think that they should because it's, it's an embarrassment for the federal court to have such a, a, an unprincipled and unwise federal precedent. So I'm, I'm hoping that they strike this down through the on bond proceeding. So are trial and appellate courts around the country now looking at modern day weapons and determining their legality by century old statutes? Is that what it's come to? Yeah, I mean, it's a bizarre process. Think about the the Bruin case where they struck down restrictions on carrying of guns. Texas had a law from 1871 to 1995 that prohibited carrying of guns. And in Bruin, they said, oh, well, that's a late statute, so certainly that can't be relevant to whether there's a right to carry guns because that was established way back in 1791. And so the Supreme Court, even when they had long-standing prohibition in the Bruin case that they could have pointed to, said they're all irrelevant because they came too late. So it's a, it's a very unwise standard for law because, of course, weaponry has become vastly more lethal and dangerous in the last 50 years than it was way back in 1791. So it's a very troubling trend, and I'm hoping in some of these really bizarre decisions that are coming down, the Supreme Court will step in and try to curb the enthusiasm that has developed among, you know, basically uh, Trump appointees and other very far-right judges to strike down every gun regulation. And there's also a separate lawsuit challenging California's ban. Do these depend on the type of weapons banned? No, I think the panel that issued the decision in Hawaii would ban every restriction on weapons practically across the board. I know that, you know, one issue that is being litigated very extensively are assault weapons bans and bans on high-capacity magazines. And if you read the ardor and enthusiasm that the recent decision on the Hawaii case has for making the Second Amendment this superpower to strike down government regulations, I think all of those regulations would be struck down if that panel were making the decision. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Professor John Donahue of Stanford Law School. A note, Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio, is a donor to groups that support gun control, including Every Town for Gun Safety. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
The two judges sit one floor apart in the Manhattan Federal Courthouse, but they came to completely different decisions on cryptocurrency. The crucial question is whether crypto is a security that can be regulated by the SEC. Judge Jed Rakoff found that Terraform Labs' token was a security when sold to retail investors, while Judge Annalisa Torres came to the opposite conclusion about Ripple Labs' token, dueling decisions that create more legal uncertainty in the regulation of crypto. But when fighting the SEC, Coinbase and other crypto companies appear to be sticking with their argument that crypto is not a security, as well as arguing that the Supreme Court's major questions doctrine applies to the crypto industry, another argument rejected by Judge Rakoff. Joining me is securities law expert James Park, a professor at UCLA Law School. The Supreme Court sort of invented this major questions doctrine fairly recently. Explain what it is. Sure. It is a recent doctrine, or at least it's been emphasized recently in a few cases. And my understanding of the doctrine is that it typically applies when an administrative agency uses a questionable reading of a statute to substantially increase its regulatory authority over what the court says is a significant portion of the American economy. And the reason, I think, for the doctrine, according to the Supreme Court, is that administrative agencies have limited power. They're not in the U.S. Constitution. They only are delegated power when Congress passes a law. And if the law is unclear, um, what the doctrine is saying is that Congress should act to make it clear that the agency has this power uh, rather than the agency taking it upon itself to interpret the statute as giving it expansive power. Terra Labs was making the argument that crypto enforcement is a major question in trying to get an SEC lawsuit dismissed? Yeah, that's right. They did raise that issue. And the judge in that case, Judge Jed Rakoff, rejected the argument. Um, And Judge Rakoff, as you may know, is one of the most prominent federal judges in the country um, and is regarded as having special expertise in securities law. So his decision is one that will be influential. And, and I think the basic argument that, uh, that Judge Rakoff made, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that um, in this case, the SEC is simply applying um, well-established disclosure requirements to crypto assets when they are securities. And this is part of the bread and butter of what the SEC does. And so it does not implicate uh, substantial new authority or power over significant economic activity. That's, I think, what Judge Rakoff says, and that's what he said in his opinion in the Terraform case. So Judge Rakoff said that crypto wasn't a major industry and it would ignore reality to put crypto on the same plane of importance as the energy and tobacco industries. But crypto advocates say it's a $1 trillion industry that's attracted investments from hundreds of millions of people globally. Yeah, I think that's the argument that the defendants are going to make, that the crypto industry will make, that this has the potential to be a transformative technology that could reshape the economy. And therefore, it involves a significant amount of economic activity. Um, I think the answer on the other side, though, is that you know, sure, on paper, um, if you add up the value of Bitcoin and Ethereum 
and some of the other crypto assets, maybe it totals about a trillion dollars. But that's based upon fairly speculative trading and perhaps uh, potentially manipulation. Do we really believe that these crypto assets are worth that much? I think there are certainly questions as to the true value of these crypto assets. Another point that should be made is that the bulk of the value of crypto is in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And um, a few years ago, the SEC explicitly said it did not consider Bitcoin or Ethereum to be security. So it's not trying to assert jurisdiction over the two crypto assets that comprise the bulk of that $1 trillion. And so the remaining crypto assets, some of which the SEC is trying to regulate, the value is probably substantially smaller than you know, a trillion dollars. And uh, so the SEC might argue that this does not involve a major question because it's really uh, a fairly small amount. And you know, even a trillion dollars, if you think about you know, the market capitalization of Tesla, for example, is around a trillion dollars. That's a single public corporation. So in the context of public market stocks and bonds, a trillion dollars, it's a lot, but it pales in comparison to the value of the markets that the SEC uh, has regulated for a long time. So that, that would be the argument, I think, that the SEC is making on the other side, that really the, the market is not as significant or strong, and that the real value is speculative, and it's really guesswork as to whether or not this is going to have any economic impact at all. Is there a question as to whether the SEC can regulate cryptocurrencies or whether it can regulate all digital assets? I think the SEC has made it clear that they're only trying to regulate those crypto assets that are securities, that fall under the Howey test. And that's only a portion. That is only a portion of the crypto assets that are out there. I think if the SEC was trying to regulate all crypto assets, that could be potentially more problematic. But to the extent that they're saying we are regulating only those crypto assets that are securities, I think they're on firmer ground. And I think the major difference between uh, potential major questions or argument in this case versus some of the ones that have been discussed in prior Supreme Court cases is that um, the courts can decide case by case whether a crypto asset is a security or is not. And so there's a natural check on the SEC's authority where, you know, they're not going to be able to simply assert authority over all crypto assets and they're not trying to do so. And to the extent that they overreach and they try to regulate some crypto assets that are not securities, then uh, litigation in the courts can check that potential abuse of power. There are dueling decisions by two Manhattan federal judges who sit one floor apart in the federal courthouse, Judge Rakoff and Judge Annalisa Torres. They came to different conclusions on whether crypto is a security when sold to retail investors, and they both applied the same 1946 Supreme Court ruling. It's a truly interesting set of decisions, and I can't recall anything like this ever happening before, although I'm sure it has, where you have this initial decision in the Ripple case, and it said that in some circumstances, Ripple is not a security when it was offered and traded in secondary markets. And that was a loss for the SEC. I don't think it was a loss, you know, that was fatal to the SEC's position, but it was a significant loss. And that could have been the only opinion, substantial opinion, on the application of the Howey test 
for a long time because it takes a long time for a case to be appealed and it takes time for the appellate court to issue a decision. So that could have been the most significant precedent on the issue for some time. And then just a few weeks later, Judge Rakoff comes out with his decision, which discusses the Ripple decision and rejects this distinction between institutional investors who are buying directly from Ripple and its founders versus the retail investors who are buying on secondary markets. He says, basically, that the marketing that was critical to determining that this was a security because there were basically statements uh, saying that there would be an expectation of profitability, that the price would rise because of the efforts of Terraform um, in Judge Rakoff's case. And what Judge Rakoff said is that those communications were uh, distributed to both retail and institutional investors. And so to draw a distinction between those two markets, according to Judge Rakoff, um, that was not, in his view, a viable distinction that could have been made. And so we have competing decisions here, two different views, and uh, we'll see what the Second Circuit says at some point. The body that would resolve this sort of a split between judges in the Southern District of New York. These judges are district court judges, so they're on the same level. So their opinion isn't binding on other district court judges. But I'm wondering if, as you mentioned, Judge Rakoff is one of the most respected federal judges in the country. He's been on the bench for nearly 30 years and is known for his expertise in securities law. So I'm wondering whether his opinion carries more weight It has a special resonance, I think, and I think that's partly because of who Judge Rakoff is. Um, It may also be because other judges find the reasoning to be persuasive. And really, at the end of the day, I think what district court judges are going to do is they're not going to say, well, this is a a decision by this judge versus another judge, because they're all great judges, in my view. The Southern District of New York has as good of judges as any in in the district court. And um, I think what they're going to really look at very carefully is is the reasoning, and they'll decide whether or not they agree with it. And, you know, judges could differ. The Howey test is broad, but they may line up in favor of one interpretation over the other if there are additional decisions that we see in the coming months or years. So I'm a little confused, James. These companies like Coinbase, are they arguing the major questions doctrine and arguing that crypto is not a security? Are they making both arguments? Yes, that's right. These are both arguments that they're asserting. And to some extent, they are independent, although you could argue there is a relationship between the two arguments. You could say that perhaps because of the ambiguity of the definition of a security that maybe it's not proper for the SEC to take the position that it's taken and that it is essentially exploiting an ambiguous definition in order to regulate substantial major questions. So there is a relationship between the two arguments, but they're also both independent arguments. And certainly the SEC has to prove in the Coinbase case that there were securities trading on that exchange, that some of the crypto assets were securities because the SEC only has jurisdiction over a securities exchange. And that's why it's important in the Coinbase case that the SEC establish that at least some of the crypto assets trading on that exchange were securities under the Howey test. 
Coinbase, which has cited the major questions doctrine in an August 4th filing, despite Judge Rakoff's opinion, and is asking another judge to dismiss an SEC lawsuit. And it's pointing to the decision by Judge Annalisa Torres and says that Judge Rakoff is wrong. So a third judge is going to decide which judge is right in his or her opinion? Yes, I think that the judge will certainly potentially weigh in on the decision. Now, another possibility, though, is that the judge may simply say something like, it's premature at this time, I can't decide this particular issue on the pleadings alone. I want more information, more discovery. So it's possible the judge could avoid for a while deciding between these two competing interpretations. But it's also very possible that the judge will look at these two decisions and decide that she agrees with one of them versus the other. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that the judge in the Coinbase case could craft her own approach and basically say, here's a a third way that these other two judges have overlooked. So there are a number of possibilities as to to what could happen. Will you explain why it's so important for the crypto industry to make this argument and to try to undercut the SEC, which is trying to police it? It's a great question. It is important because the SEC's position creates uncertainty in this industry creates uncertainty. And when there is uncertainty in an industry, then investors are less willing to commit funds. And so if the status of crypto is not certain, then institutional investors who have been willing to invest in crypto, you know, if if there is uncertainty, they're, they're not going to invest or they're going to invest on less favorable terms. If the uncertainty is taken away, then we may see more funds allocated towards crypto. And I think that's why this is such an important issue for the crypto industry. Coinbase and the exchanges are important because without a secondary trading market, it's more difficult to make these digital assets attractive for investors because investors like liquidity, right? They like to know that they'll be able to sell the digital assets they've purchased at a price that's at least approximately similar to what they bought the crypto assets for, if not higher. They want to be able to do that fairly quickly. And you need exchanges in order for that trading to happen. Without that secondary market trading, um, I think a lot of investors will be too concerned that they're buying something that is completely illiquid and they may not know when they'll be able to get their money back. And so The definition of a security is is quite critical in the crypto industry's future. I think that's very clear. So is this a question that the Supreme Court will have to consider eventually? I think it will. It will take some time, but I don't see either side really being able to back down. And I think that The crypto industry has raised sufficient funds, so they've been able to hire some of the best lawyers in the country to advocate for them and to make their case. And I think they have a basis for an argument, right? This is an an issue that involves application of a fairly vague statutory definition that's being applied to a fairly new context, one we haven't really seen before. 
And so they have a colorable legal argument. They have the funds to litigate. The SEC also has incentives to litigate as well. They've made their position very, very clear. They're concerned about the impact on retail investors, and they have taken a a clear position that some crypto assets are security, and so they will litigate as well. I see some of these cases eventually going up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Does it fit in anywhere that Congress is considering, you know, legislation in the crypto market? I mean, does that make it more of a major question if Congress is actually considering it? I guess the question is, how seriously are they considering it? (laughs) Is there really momentum for Congress to pass comprehensive legislation on this issue? I'm very skeptical that this gridlocked Congress is going to really act. And you know, the extent that they do not ask, there's an argument that the SEC is the regulator that is in the best position to regulate the exchange, Coinbase, and crypto assets. So I, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that there's going to be substantial legislation on the issue. I just don't see it happening, but I could be wrong. Oh, I don't think so. I can't see this Congress resolving this with legislation. And in general, how is the SEC doing when faced with these as you say, very expensive lawyers. I have been impressed by um, the quality um, of the SEC's work um, in this area, in the litigation. Their work product has been first rate. And, you know, these are government lawyers who are, you know, not operating in fancy law firms with a lot of resources. And they've, they've held their own, in my view. And, and we'll see how the litigation plays out over time. It, it'll be interesting. Thanks so much, Jim. Always a pleasure. That's Professor James Park of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.